There are people in this country, for whatever reason, they hear things differently. We need to stand up and we need to not just condemn and talk about horrific acts of violence, but the rhetoric that is out there because words matter and you can, it doesn't take much to connect the damn dots between rhetoric and the violence that we're seeing. And it's got to change or else this country is going to be in trouble. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel returning to Politicology, he's the former Democratic senator from Alabama, CNN political commentator, and was named President Biden's nomination advisor for legislative affairs, assisting in the nomination and confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. The Honorable Doug Jones, Senator, welcome back to the show, making time for us today. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Kind of an interesting and somewhat stressful time these days. Indeed. Also, my dear friend, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, fellow co-founder at the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Good morning, Mike. Mike Madrid, how you doing? I'm doing great, you guys. Thanks uh, for inviting me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Also joining us, Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, it's great to see you. Good morning. It's good to see you too. I'm confused though. I don't, what's Senator Jones talking about? Is there something happening soon? I hope to get to the bottom of that on this week's roundup. Indeed, on this week's roundup. First, another gargantuan hike in the Fed interest rates, President Biden's extensive push to expand the workforce, the threats to Social Security and Medicare, all issues coming into focus ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections. Next up, Liz Cheney hits the campaign trail to endorse her first Democrat, Alyssa Slotkin, in a tough re-election campaign in Michigan, and John Fetterman's new ad featuring two Trump voting former Republicans, his parents. Then we'll talk about the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul, the increase in and reactions to political violence and the conspiracy theories that have already emerged about that incident. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to pull back the curtain on the machinery that powers the outrage economy that drives political fundraising and what I think is the biggest misconception about money and politics in the information age. If you want to pull up a chair and get in on that, your Politicology Plus subscription will get you in. That comes with a private and ad-free version of the show where we talk about strategy and analysis not available on the public show. There are only two ways to get it. Option one is to sign up directly with us at politicology.com slash plus. That gets you a link you can use and listen in any major podcast player. Option two, if you only listen to the Apple Podcast app, you can navigate to the Politicology show. Tap the button that says try free and we'll see you there. On Wednesday, CNN published a story about two events about half a mile apart that highlighted one of the most politically challenging dynamics for Democrats heading into the midterms. The first one, the Fed is, of course, desperately trying to slow down inflation and just raise interest rates by another three-quarter point to a target range of 3.75% to 4%, the highest level since January of 2008. We should note mortgage rates are now at their highest levels in over 20 years, exceeding 7%. The second one, At the White House, President Biden hosted an event to highlight his administration's efforts to expand the workforce in fields like broadband and construction. Now, the Fed's move had an immediate impact on the markets, media, obviously our politics. The Biden event 
detailed an intensive long-term effort, quote, designed to reshape the pipeline to enter into professions over time. And CNN did note that Biden highlighted the legislative and executive actions Democrats have taken to lower the cost of living as he hits the campaign trail. On Tuesday in Florida, he said, quote, Democrats are lowering your everyday costs like prescription drugs, healthcare premiums, and energy bills and gas prices. He also highlighted the administration's unprecedented actions to lower gas prices, according to CNN. They've released 180 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve over the last seven months. And Politico also reported on Wednesday that the Biden-Harris administration has approved new oil and gas wells at a far faster pace than Trump administration did during its first 21 months in office. And the U.S. has also produced more crude oil since Biden took office than in the equivalent period for Donald Trump. But with days away, uh, the midterms, a new Ipsos Reuters poll found that a third of Americans rank inflation as the most important problem facing the U.S. The infrastructure talent pipeline highlighted the private and public sector efforts to train workers in broadband, construction, and electrification. Uh, At the event, Biden said more than 350 organizations across the country have committed to the challenge since it launched in June, and the White House has pitched the challenges as the tangible result of three major legislative victories, as they put it, the bipartisan infrastructure law, the law boosting American semiconductor chip manufacturing, and the healthcare tax and climate, quote, Inflation Reduction Act, end quote. Senator, you've been out on the trail over the last couple of weeks, right? So I want to know how have the voters you've been talking to see and talk about the issue of inflation and how are they responding to what the administration has done and and how are the candidates talking about it? Yeah, I feel like I've been living the Johnny Cash song. I've been everywhere, man. Uh, You know, we have literally been going from one end of the country to the other trying to help these candidates. And, you know, I, when you're out there, people are talking about inflation. You know, the fact is the American public is not used to the inflation we've had. We've gotten, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but we've gotten kind of spoiled a little bit about uh, the way that the Fed has been able to manage inflation over the last 30 years or so. And folks are trying to adjust to that. But one of the things that I keep hearing And one of the things we keep talking about is that, you know, people are at least working historic job creation. Uh, People are working now. They've had their uh, wages increased a little bit. So they're able to absorb this a little bit. They don't like it. Uh, No one likes to pay uh, higher uh, at the gas pump or the grocery store, but they're at least able to weather this a little bit. And so they're looking at this, I think, uh, as important as it is, I think, and and it is, it is one of those issues that people are concerned about. But I think there's a lot of things that the voters are concerned about in this country right now. Uh, And and they're going to take it, as they always do, they're going to take that all into account. Lucy, how are you thinking about this dynamic where there's an immediate problem and an immediate election and the policy solutions, if they work, are going to be very long term? There was an article this week about how Ron Klain every morning, basically multiple times a day, beginning at three in the morning, compulsively checks the gas prices, like what the price of gas is. And he commutes every day from his home in Chevy Chase, which is right over the line between D.C. and Maryland. And he, you know, takes down notes of of like what the what the gas prices are on his way to the office and is obsessed, you know, has tweeted about this like hundreds of times since earlier this year. And it it, it I'm reminded of this 
in this in the context of this conversation because I think that even as those things are alleviated over the course of a cycle, right? Even as like say the gas the price of gas is alleviated, it does not necessarily convert to a change in voter perception. And obviously it is easier through short-term levers and sort of immediate realization at the pump to bring down gas prices than it is to ease inflation rates. And there's this balance between, say, inflation rates and people's sense of some of their most valuable assets, right? Like the the inflation rate easing versus kind of like interest rates or how they feel about the value of their home. And so it becomes very complicated for people and people, frankly, become irrational. And when I say that they're irrational, I don't mean that, you know, I don't mean that we should not extend empathy or compassion for people who are impacted by the realities of inflation in their communities. Christmas is coming up. People feel things are tight. Things are uncertain. But I think that it is very hard in a moment like this to translate how people perceive these things versus sort of like the the ability of a party, the party in power to contort itself to try to make changes that just are not going to come to be over a short-term period. I think that this is a moment for I feel your pain politics for that reason. I also think, frankly, that a lot of these economic issues are very, very real, but they're also something that people are hiding behind as justification for support for Republicans this year. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal that I think was on the cover this week about, um, it was kind of like a man on the street voter um, type of piece. Like, you know, this guy, John Shepard in Arizona, you know, has never voted in the midterms, but this year he's going to vote in the midterms and he's going to vote Republican. And he says, the most important issues, the two, you know, main issues that are turning me out this year are the economy and the direction of the country. <laughs> well, that's a huge, huge second category, right? And and so I think sometimes we have to double click. It is good to feel people's pain. It is good to try to um, conceive of policies that address the pain that they're feeling around short-term economic changes. But we also have to be aware of the fact that that we are in sometimes in election cycles trying to play a short term game for for voters who are not going to be brought back or brought over in a short in a short term game. But those are the kinds of excuses or not excuses, but rather responses like it's the economy that people give to pollsters the week before a midterm election. Mike, the other piece of this is congressional Republicans looking at the midterm election. Right? It could put them in control of the House and the Senate now. And they started to look at plans to change Social Security and Medicare, right? Including including cutting benefits for some retirees. Uh, raising, the, raising the retirement age from 67 to 70 is among the plans. Um, you know, Biden's made securing Social Security and Medicare part of his closing pitch heading into the midterms. Um, and perhaps the most fierce defender of the programs, right, has been former President Barack Obama. Uh, Here's what he said about Republican Senator Ron Johnson while he was campaigning in Wisconsin. Senator Johnson voted to raise the retirement age to 70. 
supported a plan that would put Social Security and Medicare on the chopping block every single year. You'd, each year, you'd have to vote to renew this thing. I, I, I mean, think about it, because Washington works so well. That's, you want your Social Security and Medicare reliant on Congress every year. He's called Social Security a Ponzi scheme. Said that, that it's candy that the left is giving away. The, 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 the point is, some of you here are on Social Security. Some of your parents are on Social Security. Some of your grandparents are on Social Security. You know why they have Social Security? Because they worked for it. They worked hard jobs for it. They have chapped hands for it. They had long hours and sore backs and bad knees to get that Social Security. And if Ron Johnson does not understand that, if he understands giving tax breaks for private planes more than he understands making sure that seniors who've worked all their lives are able to retire with dignity and respect, he's not the person who's thinking about you and knows you and sees you, and he should not be your senator from Wisconsin. So, Mike, I, first of all, I have never heard Barack Obama quite that fired up, not even going back to his own days on the trail campaigning for his own election. Uh, like the anger, the, the, like the, the passion in his voice there at the end, that's, I, I haven't heard that Barack Obama before. But I want to know what your take is on trying to shift the focus toward the threat on Social Security, whether there's even enough time left for it to move enough voters. Well, first, let me be really clear about this, too. Uh, you used a very interesting word, and I think it's correct, which is anger in talking about Barack Obama. We have to remember, as skilled and talented as Barack Obama has been, and he's a generational figure, clearly, anger has never been an emotion he's allowed, been allowed to have as a black man. He's unencumbered by that now, right? And I, I think that going forward, you're going to start seeing a lot more righteous anger coming from this person in American political life because that passion is something that I think the Democratic base is going to want. And he is, he is a person that I think can uniquely inspire that sort of righteous anger from the base, which, which is desperately needed in this election cycle. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I, I, of, of, of all the laments I have had about the Republican Party's demise over the past 20 years, having something ideological to actually believe in from a policy perspective has always been at the top of the list. Wyatt is choosing now, <laughs> a week out before the elections, when things are actually looking pretty good for them, to introduce these concepts of eliminating or, or dramatically reducing Social Security makes absolutely no sense at all. Um, and, and, and which brings me to this broader thematic. The good senator and I were talking right before we went on the air about some of his crisscrossing the country right now. And I was saying that, you know, historically, I thought it was remarkable that the Democrats are as close as they are, given everything that's going on, to which he correctly pointed out, I'm surprised it's as close as they are, you know, given everything that's historically been going on. You know, this, this should not be, the Democrats shouldn't be close. The Democrats should be winning overwhelmingly, given what the, the state of the Republican Party is. And of course, he's right. Um, having said that, this the issues that we are still talking about, the Republicans still seem to be leaning into because at least as it relates to the economy, the inflation, and the direction of the country, 
they are standing on overwhelmingly solid ground here, politically speaking. And the Democrats had a real strong, difficult decision to make, which goes back to the early spring on this show when we've been talking about it as inflation was really starting to manifest and move voters away from the Democratic Party and Biden's numbers were precipitously low. You had a a decision to make. Do we lean into this inflation fight and and lean into what what Lucy um, correctly characterized as the I feel your pain politics of this? Or do you speak to the issues where you can actually win with the right combination of voters to, to help mitigate these losses or potentially even pick things up? I was arguing for the latter. Now, I don't know if I would have been right or wrong, but what I will say is this. Dobbs and Uvalde in the January 6th hearings opened up a whole new range of possibilities for Democrats on these issues. And up until very, very recently, it was looking like that was probably the right tactic. And I would suggest that it was. And, 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 and so tactically, look, I, I'm not terribly optimistic for Democrats coming into the last week of this thing. But what I will say is tactically, tactically, they have outfought the Republicans um, all day long uh, to this point. So to be in contention and to be driving the issues that they are to get their voters back and to potentially turn them out to the polls, I think, has been a, a tactical masterpiece that doesn't allow you to overcome the strategic challenges. And that's, that's the difficulty I think Democrats are in right now. And I don't know that, I don't know that when, when you're seeing wrong direction numbers sitting at 70 plus and inflation is the top issue, knowing the nature and the complications that this administration faces, look, it's not just inflationary pressures. You've got, you've got quote-unquote, you know, uh, allies or former allies in the Saudis working directly against us on gas prices. <laughs> I mean, they're working with the Russians to keep gas prices high. Like, how do you fight the, the top oil-producing nations who want high gas prices to fund Vladimir Putin's war against us, which then affects food prices? Like, the Biden administration has is, is, is been dealt a very poor hand and has been, has been hanging in there all day long. They're, they're coming out of every round um, you know, maybe beaten, but not, but not defeated here. And you got you got to give them credit for that. And, and and politically, that doesn't count for a whole lot because elections are zero sum. But I, I just I when I look back and, and and look at the trajectory of this race since January, February, I'm amazed that we're you know in in the twelfth round here, and and Biden is still looking fresh and coming in and and, and still swinging, and the Democrats are holding their own on the generic ballot. Like I, it just it, it's there's not enough data that I've looked at to, to to explain how they're hanging in there, other than what the good senator said, which is a lot of people, a wide swath of Americans are truly, genuinely motivated and understanding of the moment that this is about far bigger issues than gas prices. It's about far issue, far bigger issues than inflation. It's truly about some of the central tenets of our time, and I think at least at this moment, enough enough. Americans, broadly speaking, are showing are, are are saying they're going to show up to cast the ballot in that direction. Will it be enough? I don't know, but it it's it's actually um, it, it's showing up in the polling. It's showing up in the data. We'll see if it shows up on election day. One of the things that we really have not discussed here is what quote is the economy right now? I mean, yeah. we're, we are following so much with the media focusing on inflation. And then people think, oh my God, inflation, so the economy must be tanking. You know, I'm, I'm, as we're talking, I'm watching the stock market. The stock market is up today. That doesn't normally happen sometimes after the uh, Fed increases 
uh, in uh, rates by three quarters of a point. But you got the stock market started out today um, at, at 31,985. It's over 32,000 now. It's not up by much. But the point is, some people look at the economy according to the stock market. It's still significantly higher than it was at the height of Donald Trump's presidency. We're talking about jobs that are being created, good-paying jobs that are out there. Manufacturing has been up. And we the, the media focuses on inflation. The media focuses on, oh, my God, are we in a recession? And the fact of the matter is, this economy is not like an economy that we have had in years past. We're coming off a pandemic. We're coming out of... Um, you know, a supply chain, a serious supply chain problems. We're coming into a, uh, uh, now several months into a war in Ukraine and the oil producing nations hiking up uh, gasoline and oil prices like this. This is this is uncharted territory here. And I think the American people are also looking at that a little bit and thinking, OK, we can we're going to weather this. I mean, we've come through worse things and we're going to weather this. So let's look at these other issues. Let's look at the Dobbs uh, case and whether or not our freedoms under attack. Let's look at the democracy. And I'm going to tell you, I know we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But this, the, the attack on Paul Pelosi has now brought back the memories of January 6th. It seemed to have been faded somewhat from the American psyche a little bit that, OK, we, we got through that and we're going to survive again. And that's kind of brought this back home. So there is just an awful lot going on in the American public's mind right now about whether or not and who they should end up voting for. I think that the economy piece, I think remembering, I think that describing that as whose economy to whom and what are we measuring is so important. Because as you say, if, if you go and look at a graph of the inflation rate, but then chart along the same line, the unemployment rate, right? You're you're basically getting two mirror images because just as in interest rates are going up, unemployment is way, way down. So that right. is for sure that, you know, depending on your own lived experience, this might feel like a fantastic economy. But I would just say just very quickly, I think that heading into next week, keeping all of these ideas in one's mind is really critical because we tend to look back on election cycles as binary. Like if if there it's a red wave or it's like, you know, Republicans uh, took back the House and we read those the same way, right? Instead of thinking, as Mike alludes to, I think very sensibly, look at the ground that Democrats have made up this year in, in a position that at the beginning of the year, everyone thought Democrats are dead in the water going into the next Congress. And that just hasn't turned out to be the case. So I think regardless of the outcome, thinking about that um, those inroads that they've made against a, a red uh, incursion is um, is worth keeping top of mind. You know, in a political atmosphere dominated by negative partisanship, some of the shining lights in this exam in this election cycle have been candidates pushing for a politics of addition. And you know, I've I've mentioned uh, Texas. Beto is doing a masterful job there. Where really he, you know, he's not going to win, doesn't have a chance to win, but he's featuring Republican voters in his advertising. Tim Ryan's, you know, uh, showing voters that it's possible to run against Biden, particularly on you know how he. Uh, showing Democrats it's possible to run against Biden uh, with how he handled the student debt cancellation. There are two stories I wanted to highlight on that front this week. And on on Tuesday, Liz Cheney returned to the campaign trail. Uh, and for the first time in her career, campaigned for a Democrat. 
She's going to leave office in January, obviously, after losing her uh, Republican primary in Wyoming, but she's making an effort to shape the next session of Congress. And a week after she uh, offered a surprise endorsement of Michigan Democrat Alyssa Slotkin, she then joined Slotkin for a campaign event in Michigan on Tuesday and praised her as, quote, a good and honorable public servant. And she encouraged voters to put country over party, saying, if we want to ensure the survival of the republic, we have to walk away from politics as usual. We have to stand up, every one of us, and say we're going to do what's right for this country and we're going to look beyond partisan politics. So Slotkin was first elected in 2018. She's the only Democrat serving in the House who represents a district won by Mitt Romney in 2012 and Trump in 2016 and 2020. Uh, Senator, when you were on the show uh, in early 2021, you were just getting ready for your seminar at Georgetown, specifically on bridging the divides. And I want to know what you thought about Cheney making her first ever endorsement of a Democrat. But then more broadly, how do you think across the aisle endorsements like this uh, can, will, maybe help bridge the partisan divide? They will only help. First of all, I uh, absolutely applaud uh, Liz Cheney. Um, you know, I she on a matter of policy, uh, I often disagree with, probably more often than not. But in terms of protecting this democracy and protecting the right to vote, protecting our institutions of government, we're on the same page. And I think we've got to have more of those. I hope that people will look at Liz Cheney and others and, and, and do similar things. You know, right now across this country, every political party in every state is having a purity test that if you, if you endorse someone uh, from the other party in any particular election, then you're going to be barred from running in the next uh, election cycle. We need to kind of get away from that, and we need to start building this. As I said, I think the last time, Ron, on the, uh, on the show, a democracy co coalition that is really can we can debate these policies like we've done so many times in our throughout our history, but yet we can also respect the institutions of our government. We can respect our Constitution, and we can build this pro-democratic uh, politics. To, to save this union. That's what I think is going to have to happen. And I think there, there has to be more folks. It, it just seems like in this particular election, you have so many election deniers and conspiracy theorists who are out there running, um, who got the Republican nomination. It seems slanted and easy for Democrats to say that we should do this. It's going to be harder if all of a sudden Democrats start uh, nominating for however reason in whatever these races, some really, really, really radical leftists that are, are saying crazy things to come out and say, no, 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 that's a bridge too far, folks. <clears throat> and we got to pull this back to the middle. I'm firmly convinced that that will happen, um, but we will. it will remain to be seen whether the Democratic Party can do the same thing that we are urging Republicans to do on the other side. The other story in this bag is uh, that late last week, John Fetterman debuted an ad featuring two Trump voting former Republicans endorsing him as a candidate for governor. And those two Trump voters also happen to be Fetterman's parents. Let's take a listen to that ad. We want to tell you something about John Fetterman. He was raised by two Trump voting Republicans right here in this house in New York. Us. Growing up, he never dreamed of being a politician. He got involved to help people. John learned so much here in Central PA. His values, common sense, and standing up for what is right. He's our son, but really, he's a son of Pennsylvania. I'm John Fetterman, and I approve this message. 
So this ad was part of a group of ads uh, the campaign dropped last week featuring longtime Republicans who plan to vote for Fetterman. And Mike, why don't you kick us off here on, like, on creating this permission structure for Republican voters to vote for Fetterman? What did you think? Well, look, I think it's smart, and I think it fits a broader narrative that, that Fetterman has been trying to, um, uh, to cast himself as. He's, he's really kind of this anti-Democrat in so many ways by being this blue-collar, working-class, you know, Trumpy kind of figure— um, that has really, I think, been beyond the grasp of most Democrats, at least in the last 10, 15 years. This is that voter that they've been struggling with. Now, ironically, if you look under the crosstabs, Fetterman's actually not doing that well with a lot of these, these Trump voters. Um, Shapiro's doing much better with these voters than, than he is. Yeah, he is. Um, so so there's, there's a question as to whether or not this tactic is necessary, the strategic question is necessary. I will say this, as I've been saying all along, I think... I think the fundamentals in Pennsylvania are actually quite good for Democrats. I think they always have been. Um, we, we're seeing the latest round of polls um, with the, with the you know, post-Vetterman-Oz debate having no impact at all, um, kind of the way the Herschel Walker debate had no impact at all amongst voters. We're just too, it's just too partisanized an environment. People really don't care. Um, so look, I think this is a good um, way to close out the campaign. I don't think it's necessarily going to, to change any minds. I think it may go a little, a uh, little bit of the way to cementing in where public opinion is at, that is giving Fetterman this, this advantage, this, this narrow, but discernible advantage. Um, I'm surprised they didn't begin the, begin the campaign with this type of an opening, right? It's not a surprise that they have this, this in their, in their toolkit when they were setting the frame of who he was, um, but I, like I said, I, I don't, I don't think that anything is changing the fundamental trajectory of the race. I think they're continuing to double down and try to peel off as many of these voters in, in Pennsylvania. We call it the T again, Pennsylvania is this rectangle. And if you look at Pittsburgh in the, in the lower e, lower West side of the state and Philadelphia in the lower right side of the state, those are kind of the urban suburban cores, everything around it, everything that's left shapes a T, which is really r- rural, uh, non-college educated white folks who have been work who work in these industries that have been decimated by the the modern economy this is how trump won by overperforming with these groups this is how biden won by closing the gaps in the t the 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 performance for a democrat in the t again a democrat's not going to win in this area but if they can narrow the gap that's how you win statewide and that's what they're trying to do here um like i said will it work i don't think this changes the trajectory of the race but i don't think it has to I think Fetterman is going to do just fine. I think it's going to be closer than everybody would like. But I think that um, he's in the strongest position fundamentally to win the race. Lucy, how do you think campaigns can can look at the, you know, quote, the elusive Trump voting former Republican, right, as persuadable voters moving forward? And, 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 and what are ways you might try to swing those voters in either direction? Well, I think that it's important to understand and keep in mind that some of these voters are not gettable. Some of them are part of a probably a permanent realignment. And I think that sometimes that we've talked about this in different ways on the roundup, I think that Republicans actually are much better tuned in to the realignment that has happened than Democrats across several voting blocks. And so I think Democrats sort of getting more tuned in to new audiences that they could tap into is is kind of critical. Um, 
I think that not everyone, not every candidate is going to come in the form of John Fetterman. It's very convenient that he has these Trump voting parents and he himself is has this populist streak that certainly meets the moment for a lot of voters. But I think that he is also really using language that signals, I think Mike mentioned Tim Ryan um, someone mentioned Tim Ryan, that sort of the way that Tim Ryan has, you think you did, against running against Biden, right? Running against the idea of objecting to student loan debt forgiveness. You know, Tim Ryan is also using language. Like Tim Ryan gave a speech where he said that, you know, a mainstream media outlet had said that um, uh, people who hadn't gone to college just are not ever going to be Democratic voters at this point. And he said, you know, I really resent that. That's a, a way of tapping into that same idea that there is still a cultural fabric in the Democratic Party where there's a home for you. Fetterman is doing the same thing. Another ad that Fetterman put out this week, he talked about how people, someone like Oz sees rust. He was talking about Western PA specifically, but he sees steel, right? That that the idea that actually Democrats could be the people for whom, you know, who will provide the best days ahead of you, not behind you. And so some of those very small signals, I think, are a big piece of that that you see missing in other Democratic candidates' talking points. I do think one of the things that has interested me most about some of the ads that Fetterman has cut in the last week is, and I know people like to know how the sausage is made. Some of his ads, if you go and watch them, are almost like outlines of like, okay, they tested this message. They tested this message. They tested this message. And it's like, I'm John Fetterman. And this is how I feel about this. And this is how I feel about this. And this is how I feel about this. These are very, very, um, uh, these are disciplined messages that that are really an attempt to directly reach what they believe this persuadable audience wants to hear. And one of the issues that he is not talking about at all is democracy, the struggle for democracy, January 6th, things that you could certainly hit someone like Oz on, things that certain sectors, politicology listeners are motivated by. I think it is part of his message discipline is a willingness to engage on messages that are not not the things that are top of mind for, say, the Washington chattering class. Ron, Lucy makes a, a really good point because Fetterman's got those those voters who uh, deny, you know, that that are concerned about January 6th and democracy. He's got those voters. What he is now reaching for is those voters in the middle, those voters who are maybe concerned about that, maybe not, but they've also got that blue collar message. And I, you know, guys, I am probably older than all three of you combined. Um, and so I remember a day when the Democratic Party started hemorrhaging uh, voters because um, it was moving too far to the left. I remember the day when Ronald Reagan and Republicans in the early 80s were actively trying to solicit and successfully soliciting voters in their TV and ads and their radio spots. This is not just John Fetterman and Tim Ryan that are doing this. Kendra Horn in Oklahoma is has received 
a, a, an endorsement from the former chairman of the Oklahoma Republican Party. Um, you've got uh, Mike Franken in Iowa, who is making a real run at defeating Ch- uh, Chuck Grassley, who's been um, in, in there for, you know, for 40 something years since 1980, I think. So what I think you're beginning to see is that, yes, you've got a, a segment of these, the Republican Party that is, is being labeled as MAGA extremists, for right, right or wrong. But there are so many others in that party that are uncomfortable with that and that see things in a different way. And Democrats have an opportunity to pull those folks in and say there is a, a better way and get back to the roots of the Democratic Party. And that is representing the farmer, the working man, the, the folks that brought you Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and all, that, that brought you the minimum wage and the 40-hour work week. Th- those are the kind of things that I think Democrats are seeing as a positive message right now. And it's, it's working. Whether or not that it, it results in a win for Kendra Horn or Mike Franken, I don't know, but I do know this. It's going to get people thinking a little bit, and those races are going to be closer because of, of, of the message that, that they're going on out there. So we've got this cycle that we're, we're working on, and it's interesting to see how Democrats are adapting to it to try to pull back in those very voters. John Tester and I did something for uh, Kendra Horn last night, and John is the, another perfect example of someone who can reach into the, the breadbasket, into the heart of Montana, of folks that will not vote for uh, a Democrat for president, but they're going to vote for John Tester because he goes where they are and he talks to them and can associate and and do things for um, those constituencies. And I, I think that that's going to be important in Pennsylvania, but in so many districts across this country. Well said. I wanted to get your thoughts on the Paul Pelosi uh, situation. So or just for our listeners, early last Friday morning, uh, of course, a man broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home, assaulted her husband, Paul, with a hammer. Suspect's been identified as 42-year-old David DePape. He was searching for the speaker, shouting, where's Nancy? Um, Paul Pelosi was taken to the hospital, had surgery to repair a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands, according to the speaker's office. And of course, this attack comes amid an increase in threats against lawmakers and government officials over the last several years. Uh, you know, I got a list of bullets here. Uh, but as we continue seeing a rise in attacks, um, how do you think it impacts elected officials and, and, and really who decides to run for office in the first place? Because it seems like politics is getting a whole lot more dangerous than it was before. And you know, I, know you, I know you have lots to say on the topic of political violence, and maybe you can um, remind our listeners of your, your, your background on this. Yeah, you know, I, look, I am, I am especially concerned about it. And I think uh, for me, uh, that brought back um, a lot of bad memories growing up in Alabama, where you had uh, political figures that were giving dog whistle politics and essentially giving permission for the Klan to bomb a church that killed four uh, young black girls to attack a, an, an Emmett Till, which was, in fact, you know, a, a couple of law enforcement themselves, um, to murder three civil rights workers in, in Mississippi. And, and we think, you know, everybody's thinking, oh, that was then. We're, we're different now. Well, we're not different. We, we still, political violence has been in this country since we started. But what I'm seeing now is just this rhetoric and that is coming. And 
from so many sources. And Democrats are not without sin here. Let me say that very quickly. I mean, we had Steve Scalise shot at a baseball practice, for goodness sake. We had someone arrested outside Justice Kavanaugh's home. So there is this on the left. But the fact of the matter is the overwhelming amount of rhetoric as well as violence that's coming from the right. And that's very, very disturbing. And the Paul Pelosi thing really, I hope for people in this country, will kind of hearken back to January 6th and what everyone in this country witnessed on television. And that is, you know, pro-Trump supporters that are beating police officers with flags, that are running around with Confederate flags and, you know, buffalo horns on their head, for God's sakes, that such a violent attack on our nation's capital was in fact an insurrection. And it was, it was, it was thwarted that day, but will it be the next time? And we are moving in an era that I think that we have got to start talking about this. This goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago with Liz Cheney and the fact that folks on both sides of the aisle have to start standing up and and not just condemning violence. Everybody is going to condemn violence, for goodness sake. I'm tired of listening to people sending thoughts and prayers and not condemning the rhetoric that is truly happening out there that is causing some of this violence. Folks need to understand, and I've lived it so much, that there are people in this country that, for whatever reason, they hear things differently. And when they hear um, folks demanding uh, death for traitors, when they hear folks shooting, see folks on ads shooting guns while saying fire Pelosi, when they hear things like that, there is something in their brains that is going in a different direction. And they have the, the, the ability to say, I am going to take this matter into my own hands. And that's a frightening place to be where we are in this country. I hope folks will start standing up and speaking out, not just about the violence, But let's talk about the rhetoric. Let's talk about how we condemn the rhetoric out there. And let's let the left, the Democrats, call out folks if it happens in the Democratic side or on the left side. But let's see some of these Republican leaders call out folks of their own and say, you're out of line. That is wrong. We need to stand up and we need to not just condemn and talk about horrific acts of violence, but the rhetoric that is out there. Because words matter, folks. Words matter, and you can, it doesn't take much to connect the damn dots between rhetoric and the violence that we're seeing, and it's got to change or else this country's going to be in trouble. Senator Jones, I know you got to run. you got candidates to go help, but thanks for spending some time with us today. Talk to you soon. Great to see you guys. Great to be with you. Um, let's call. Let's get this over the finish line next week. We'll see uh, where we are. I, I hope that we are going to be on the first major step to restoring our values in our democratic society and our union rather than dismantling it. But we'll see how it goes. Yes, sir. Amen. Mike and Lucy, I want to talk about the reactions uh, to this a bit more. So last week, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, told a crowd at a campaign event, uh, quote, Speaker Pelosi's husband had a break-in last night in their house and he was assaulted. There's no room for violence anywhere, but we're going to send her back to be with him in California. That's what we're going to do. He has since apologized and admitted that he was wrong. Um, Arizona Republican candidate for Governor Kerry Lake 
was asked a question about school safety while campaigning this week. She said, quote, it is not impossible to protect our kids at school. They act like it is. Nancy Pelosi, well, she's got protection when she's in D.C. Apparently her house doesn't have a lot of protection, end quote. So Senator Jones just said, yeah, of course, everybody's going to condemn violence. And the chaser is obviously, uh, you know, these two very prominent Republicans. I want to know what your reaction was to these responses. Uh, Lucy, you want to lead off? Yeah, very prominent Republicans. Also, two very different types of prominent Republicans because Glenn Youngkin has spent a lot of time trying to thread the needle as Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. You know, you can trust me. I'm a businessman. I'm not some wild-eyed um, MAGA guy, right? And we see that when you look at the difference between who who are the people that helped Glenn Youngkin win Virginia in 2021. Some of them were people who had voted for Biden, who were disaffected Republicans, who thought that Glenn Youngkin was the road back to Republican decency. Carrie Lake is a different story. She's a totally indecent person. She's a megalomaniac. She's a Trumpian character herself. So her gross reaction, much less interesting to me than Glenn Youngkin's, because Glenn Youngkin supposedly is the person that we can actually count on. And I think a lot has been made in the bid for the idea that we could keep reasonable republicanism alive in t- of of the idea that well yes they're playing into this rhetoric because that's how you get voters to support you but these are not election deniers these are not you know yes they're making certain concessions or sort of comments we wouldn't like on the trail but you know Glenn Youngkin is no Donald Trump is whatever, so on and so forth. But the truth is that this is where the base is. And so they all, whether they began this way or not, are all transmogrifying into the same Trumpian creatures themselves, and they will continue to. And I think that one of the things that we miss sometimes when we're talking about what is at stake here is that we often talk about this fight as if we are all on the brink, this is really touch and go, and we're on the brink of a civil war. Like California is going to be at war with Nevada. That what's at stake in our democracy is, um, uh, you know, war, outright war between neighbors or outright war at a, a state border bordering another state. And I think that we've really done a disservice to the American people in how we talk about the stakes, because it has caused to be lost in a lot of this, that what we're actually talking about is decentralized political violence, decentralized political violence that doesn't look like a civil war, but looks like um, violence popping up, rhetoric uh, in, in different corners of the country, not just Nancy Pelosi's husband, but like local election officials being targeted, right? People um, attacking and assaulting their fellow citizens who are just trying to drop their ballots off at a drop box. And so I think that we will look back on the Paul Pelosi attack, not as the turning point, but I think a flashpoint that will help us see in hindsight what we sometimes mislabel as something like a civil war is actually already here and it has been here. And we are not, uh, there's there's not going to be a moment where it's like, we're in it, 
right? Like, oh, this is the sign. There's not a a 9-11 moment, right? It's all these little things. It's like someone attacking an FBI field office. It's Paul Pelosi having a break-in like this. These moments collectively, this is the crisis. The crisis is here. Yeah. Mike, this makes me think of... uh... The uh, I mean, to totally agree everything Lucy just said, and it makes me think of back in uh, May or so when you and I were on our way to Ukraine, coming back from Ukraine. Something that uh, something we started saying to each other um, as a, you know shorthand was the water's getting hotter, right? The wa- the water's getting hotter. What does this make you think of? Well, I think I think Lucy characterized this very well, and I think that viewers need to really, really breathe that in. Is the the the, the civil war is it's it's upon us. We are in the midst of it. Um, it's not going to look like you know blue and gray lined up on you know border states necessarily. It's going to look like we've talked about this on the show. It's going to look like the troubles in Northern Ireland. It's going to be marred by local political violence. It's going to be marred by. Um, people trying to upend uh, the counting of ballots in certain states and certain regions. It's going to look like spouses and elected officials themselves coming in under harm's way. It's going to look like the destruction of federal and state and government office buildings. Um, it's it's going to be uh, characterized by a wide segment of our society that has been radicalized and we have not fully um, embraced that understanding yet as a society that is not healthy. We have to start talking about the fact that fully a third, maybe even more of our, of our countrymen and women are, are radicalized and have, have been radicalized to extreme politics where they will justify the destruction of the country towards aims and means that they're not even certain of what they are. And, and we also have to recognize that this is not coincidental. This didn't just emerge on its own. This has been fueled and exacerbated and funded in a categorically um, and sophisticated manner, right? And it's not just the right-wing media machine, although that's a part of the infrastructure. There are very sophisticated foreign actors that are, are, this is the investment. This is what they have been trying to get to, is America fighting itself as it's trying to expand itself in different parts of the world is authoritarianism's greatest, greatest threat is democracy. And if democracy can eat itself, it's far more efficient. It's far more, more cost effective. It's far cheaper in terms of lives and treasure than any other, uh, you know, manner of, of, of overtaking us and seeing systems collapse. Like this is, this is a smart investment on behalf of the Russians largely where this is coming from, but authoritarian regimes generally. And we have to start understanding and talking and communicating about the fact that that's where this is coming from, okay? This is not new. It's been happening for 15 years. It's not specific to the United States. It's like when we talk about this, we don't talk about it in terms of Republicans and Democrats because it's so much bigger. It's happening all over the world to democracies, and the rise of this authoritarian threat is directly traceable to the investments made by foreign actors, okay? And, and so, again, a little bit esoteric and clearly a lot of passion, but until we as a country come to terms with the fact that we are in the midst of a global war, a global conflict, and understand the true nature of where this is actually deriving from, we can't win. The, the Democrats can't win every election cycle from here on out for the rest of forever, and 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 we and that's not can't dilute us into thinking that even if that were to happen, that would keep us safe. 
That's not understanding what is happening in society. And it's not just this collapse of American values and you know, the idea of the American experiment coming undone. While that's true, we have to understand that this is all part of a broader play. And as you and I have shared in some of those trips uh, on Ukraine and coming back, the water is getting hotter because Putin is losing the kinetic war in in. Uh, Eastern Europe, in, in Eastern Ukraine right now. That's true, but he is winning the communications and digital battle that is being fought in Western democracies uh, that he has been investing in for the last 15 years. And if you don't believe that, look at our country today. That's what is happening. The conflict is here. Political violence is going to be part of it. Uh, messing with ballot boxes and, and undermining the confidence in elections is a part of that. Fake news is central to the whole thing, along with attacking our own institutions, our own not just our own American institutions, but literally buildings at this point. It's here. It's upon us. The, the age, the age, this new age of acrimony is upon us, and we can only overcome it once we understand the true source of its energy and the intent of what is, is uh, hoping to be accomplished here. We also have some of the loudest voices on the right, on the political right, pushing a salacious conspiracy theory now uh, that that Paul Pelosi and the man who attacked him were gay lovers who had gotten into a fight. And and we have, you know, Trump Jr. and Dinesh D'Souza promoting this claim to their millions of followers. Uh, San Francisco Police Chief William Scott said there's absolutely no evidence, of course, that Pelosi knew his attacker. His attacker. Um, and then Donald Trump, of course, said during an interview with uh, with uh, conservative radio host Chris Steigel that the window was broken from the inside and he hinted at the attack being staged. So I think it's important to note the role of conspiracy theories uh, in in this information war that's being waged within America, within Western democracy, right? Yeah, it's it's the most central tactic of the whole thing. It's it's our weakest point. And, and like individuals, oftentimes na- a nation's, a country's greatest strength is its, is its Achilles heel. And in this, in this, we have always bought into the idea, because it has been true to this point, that the, the more freer exchange of information, the better and stronger we get. The, 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 our ability to discern what is true and what is not through all of these filters that we had, the hierarchy of our media cleaned all of that garbage out. Not always, but sometimes, and usually enough, that's not the case in a, in, in a time of social media and fragmenting media and people choosing their own news sources and the, the viability of these broader, you know, more legitimate, credible news sources not being believed. Uh, and, and when that happens, democracy itself is genuinely in trouble because you cannot come to compromise, which is what democracy really is, if you can't agree on a set of facts, and, and, and so compromise literally is impossible. And without, without compromise, democracy fails. And that's the intent of fake news. That's the intent of, of driving fake uh, uh, um, um, facts and, and, and conspiracy theory because conspiracy theory is also intended to, to make you question what the intent of the individuals and the persons are behind the actions you're making up. And that's what is also so nefarious about this Pelosi story is there, the, the two people that have been most vilified over the past three decades by the Republican apparatus have been Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi. And so anything, anything that is alleged about them or their families or their intents um, feed easily into this narrative about what the true agenda of how they're trying to destroy 
either the country or society or morality or whatever, um, you know, that's how it manifests. That's how it takes, that's how it roots. It makes me think of a couple of things. I mean, there's so many pieces to pull apart. We could spend hours just talking about this, but I think that it's, there's a, a big piece of it. And even as you talk about the kind of persona, the, the persona that both Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi fit into, which is kind of women before their time, uh, powerful, highly educated, rich, right? Part of elite institutions. It it all is part of this, this, this element of the fragmentation of media and how people consume and interact with their news and content and each other that aside from just being kind of um, organized around, well, this is my general worldview. I'm conservative, so I want to read conservative-leaning content. I'm liberal, so I want to read liberal-leaning content, whatever, is really fundamentally anti-elitist. It's it's about a form of anti-elitism that does not just say, oh, I'd, I'd like more, a little bit more of a right-wing perspective, a conservative perspective in, in content. It's like, I would like a perspective that is explicitly not the New York Times, because that is an elite publication and they're all in cahoots against me, right? Uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial board, even though many of us would probably think it leans right, right? That's out too, because that is just as <laughs> just as erudite. You know, Fox News is too elite for many of these people. And I've been thinking about this because there was a there's there's this effort that has been afoot for many years on the right that the left has tried to answer to, which is that something that uh, people on the right really began doing a very long time ago, um, almost almost like around the time that the internet started being part of politics, but then again more so in recent cycles, is to build up media entities that have the appearance of being like local news sites, right? Um, sort of like a patch.com. So you you get um you you start going to their websites and and actually they're just they're just propaganda machines for right wingers. And so in any given state, probably like the right wing think tank and the right wing activist groups, they're actually all just feeding what is basically propaganda into these news sites and just sort of ginning up fervor among their audience. And so the left has, for the last several cycles, thought, how do we combat against this? And in general, and there are definitely extremists on the left, no question, all the caveats, everyone gets that. But I mean the center left. The center left has been like, how do we pull people back from the brink? There's just a piece last month in Wired about the the most well-known group that does this called Acronym. And they've established all of these newsrooms and the they're trying to fill the the void left by the um old like the the old guard of local news, which has gone into business, which is another big piece of this problem. And and this piece, and I admire their work, they're doing important work. But I started thinking as I was thinking of this piece, like why actually will this kind of effort by institutional Democrats, why is it not working in the way that we would hope? And the reason is that because it's not, it doesn't meet all those other criteria, right? Of like being insane, <laughs> right? Like being yep. anti-elitist because yep. it is actually saying it is almost, it's almost like a, it's trying to create a permission structure to be like, 
come back in to the waters of trusting our institutions, right? Everything's actually fine. And you're not going to have an audience for that. So in the this broader scale of, of landscape of political violence, you also have this problem of just really, really uneven fighting forces where the the force that is on the side of trying to make sure that the good prevails over evil is just not set up to engage in the warfare that is needed to bring these people back from the brink or to to just kind of try to blow up the machinery of the right-wing hate factory altogether. We're just not set up for it. And and partially because that type of warfare is so ethically and morally yeah. fraught to begin with, right? So all of this actually, I'm so, I'm so glad we're ending with this subject and uh, you put it really well, Lucy. The one huge component to this uh, that we haven't talked about, is, like all of this just accrues to our plus conversation today because money to me is the biggest factor in the way that this information is 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 created, propagated, weaponized, um, and, and that's what we're going to spend time talking about at Politicology Plus. Before we do that, uh, let's look at what you're watching under the radar, um, Mike. What do you got? Boy, I thought it would come to me. I'm still my eyes are still focused on Brazil. Um, Look, uh, obviously, I was you know pretty involved there. Got you know, the opportunity to go down in September, get a first first hand look at what was happening with this uh, struggle um, between authoritarianism uh, and democracy. The elections were held with Jair Bolsonaro coming in closer than most of us uh, had hoped, um, but not enough to overcome Lula, the leftist challenger, to beat his incumbency. Um, Bolsonaro uh, kind of shocked the world. I think most of us were anticipating an immediate coup because it was so close and because he'd been signaling it for so long. Um, he's actually come out and basically said, let's begin the transition of power uh, from our government to the new administration. At the same time, I think so many millions of people were frothed up by the idea that they were not going to hand over power. You are seeing truckers shutting down infrastructure in the government, you are seeing people uh, storming federal government office buildings, um, trying to um, uh, prevent this this peaceful transfer of power. Uh, what Bolsonaro does to either quell this or slow this down, or whether it's being fueled behind the scenes to have him then rise up uh, once the quote unquote people have spoken, will, will remain to be seen. But you know, Brazil is a is a very fragile moment, not unlike our own interregnum period between. November and January uh, in 2020, when Donald Trump was still uh, fueling some of these conspiracy theories and the big lie, uh, democracies require a a a will a a willing loser. And for the moment, um, surprisingly, Bolsonaro seems to be playing that role. But I think at a moment's notice, a, a match can be tossed onto all the fuel that is lining up in Brazil. And the rest of the Western world is looking to see if it can hold on to these institutions. And I'm sure behind the scenes has committed support uh, to those efforts to preserve and protect the peaceful transition of power if needed. But again, this I can't explain to people how significant the peace on the chessboard of democracy Brazil is at this moment in time. Steve Bannon has called it the, the biggest peace in the international MAGA movement. 
The Russians have been involved deeply there for many, many, many years. Um, this is what um, was was positing to be whether or not uh, far right forces that were authoritarian were, were going to relinquish control, um, uh, or whether they were going to, you know, usher in a new era globally of saying we, we will doesn't matter what the outcome of elections are, we're going to stay in power. So for the moment, at least moment by moment, even heading into the uh, November elections here in the United States, to me, the most fragile moment, the most fragile place for democracy, at least for the next 72 hours, will be in Brazil. So um, my thoughts, hopes, prayers, and, and, uh, and, and God's grace uh, focus on, on Brasilia and Sao Paulo and Rio to hold the line for democracy um, as we begin a fight for our own here in the United States, just keep a keep a moment of thoughts and prayers for the people of Brazil. Lucy, what do you got? Well, first, I have to say, you know, it's gotten really bad in America when <laughs> Bolsonaro appears to be um, participating in a peaceful transition of power that we just knock on wood, but that we could only dream of a Trumpian style figure uh, committing to participating. <laughs> in. Right. So. Not great. Right. Um, you know, I am thinking a lot about, and we've actually touched on a lot of these themes today, but I'm thinking about an element of a story that is not under the radar at all, but is is an element that is um, that I think a piece of the broader story, which is all of the fallout of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. And in particular, I am interested in the fallout and the reporting has been a little hazy, but around the uh, news that Elon Musk basically has tried to dismiss uh, previous executives of Twitter uh, from their posts by firing them for cause, uh, which would have a lot of downstream implications. Basically, these are all corporate executives. So they all, first of all, are earning stock every year um, and would have another big stock vest on November 1st, which would mean they would have this additional payout. But also, they all have contract employment contracts by which, as people who are like in the C-suite of Twitter, a giant company, they all have golden parachutes at the time that they're sent packing. And so... And look, no one's like, no one, these are not people who are in bread lines or something. These are people who are already rich. Um, but I think that the reaction to this story, and so there were some interesting kind of Twitter hot takes of like, how is how is Elon Musk so comically evil that um how, that, you know, I'm rooting for corporate executives to like millionaires to get their golden parachutes, right? But I think it's a reminder. Of there has also been a lot of fervor of like, why would we care about these rich corporate executives, right? Like, why do they need the money? Why would we concern ourselves with this? And there are a lot of reasons that you should. Like, they had contracts. Like, they were told. I mean, they uh, this was agreed to, <laughs> right? And we can't just have a culture where we act like it's acceptable to blow up commitments that we've made to people, whether they're rich or not rich or all the things. But there's something more interesting, which is, I think, the cult of personality around Musk, who is the richest man in the world. The reaction has not been, by many, it's like the answer, the guy, he's just trying to reduce his bill, right? Like he's not, this is a billionaire and suddenly you have decided that Elon Musk is like a hero of the common man and that he is the warrior against against the the 
the corporate elites of, you know, the the Twitter C-suite. That's obviously ridiculous. He's not self-made. You know, he's a millionaire who is self-made and that he grew up a millionaire and became a billionaire. There are so many things that are wrong with it. But I mention it because this isn't really just about Elon Musk. It's about how common now in this populist era, I think, people's ability to just really seize on and become infatuated with these characters is. And this is something that we see with Trump as Trump as the common man. And it's something that I think I have a especially nervousness around it because I also see people who are trying to use their platform for good using the same type of language to try to capture some of those imaginations as well. We talked about how John Fetterman, who, you know, I hope wins next week in Pennsylvania, how part of his power is tapping into that populist anger and that populist sentiment. So again, all the caveats, I hope John Fetterman wins. I'm not comparing John Fetterman. I'm not saying that John Fetterman is an Elon Musk character or anything. This is not about John Fetterman. It's not even about Elon Musk. It's really about the rest of us and how we all are or are not participating in these narratives where sometimes they're forces for good, but that take us down a long slide to something that I think has very long-term cultural implications and we need to be nervous about. That is so good. It's so, so good. Preferred political narratives make for very strange twit fellows. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed they do. So good. Uh, all right. I just, I don't, I don't have a story this week. I just want to remind everybody that, um, uh, our, our, our dear friend Molly McHugh is, uh, going to be heading to Ukraine soon to, to deliver a lot of the, the winter gear that, that you dear politicology listeners helped us raise money to buy. Was considering trying to go with her, but it's just too much at this point. And I just, you know, send your good vibes to Molly as she's making her way over to Ukraine soon. And, uh, that's all I got. Gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where, again, we're going to discuss the outrage economy that drives political fundraising and what that machinery looks like uh, behind the curtain. Where can everybody find you on the internet? Do you want to be found on Twitter this week, Lucy? <laughs> well, for now, you can still find me on Twitter <laughs> at Lucy M. Caldwell. Mike? Yeah, I, I like that. For the moment, I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Madrid underscore Mike. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.